Welcome to the Be Good Podcast, where we explore the application of behavioral economics for good in order to nudge better business and better lives. Hi, and welcome to this uh, episode of Be Good, brought to you by the BVNet Unit, a global consultancy specializing in the application of behavioral science for successful behavior change. Every month, we get to speak with a leader in the field of behavioral science in order to get to know more about them, their work, and its application to emerging issues. My name is Eric Singler, the CEO of the BV Energy Unit, and with me is my colleague, Scott Young. Hi, Scott. Hey, Eric. Uh, great to join you today, and uh, I'm always excited to join you for these episodes, and Uh, today, I have the, the honor of introducing our guest, Liam Delaney. Uh, Liam is the head of the Department of Psychological and Behavioral Science, which we'll call PBS, at the London School of Economics, the LSE, uh, which is a, ro a role that he assumed, I believe, last summer. Uh, prior to LSE, uh, Liam was Deputy Dean of Sterling Management School and also Deputy Director of the Geary Institute at UCD, University College Dublin, where he directed a Center for Behavioral Science and Public Policy. Uh, Liam has worked at the intersection of economics and psychology for his, his career and he's published very widely in both economics and psychology journals. Uh, Liam, welcome. It's great to have you with us. Thank you very much. Liam, thank you so much for joining us uh, today. We are very excited to speak uh, with you. And uh, if it is okay, we would like to start by speaking uh, about your background and personal journey to behavioral science. So uh, first, can you tell us a bit about what led you to economics and when and how you became interested in behavioral science? Yes. Uh, I mean, I grew up in Ireland in the 80s during a, a major recession and I was reflecting a lot. I think many people who work in these areas or indeed any area, you have formative experiences when you're young. And for me, it was seeing the psychological effect of unemployment. I think it, it resonated with me very strongly all the way through my childhood, seeing people really struggling with unemployment and trying to connect together in my head that connection between large-scale macroeconomic events that everybody was talking about on the TV and then the experience of it. And uh, in my local library, there was uh, three sections that I frequented quite a lot when I was a teenager, the economic section, the psychology section, and the chess section. And um, so I, I don't know whether it points to not being terribly imaginative, but I, I, I applied to do psychology and economics in university when I was um, still quite young and um, really um, never considered economics and psychology as distinct. And I don't know quite where I got that from. I can't pinpoint any moment um, in my teens where I would have come to that realization. I don't think I ever really considered them as distinct. Um, but like many people, um, when I was 18, I read Kahneman and Tversky for the first time Uh, and I was doing a lot of microeconomics, uh, neoclassical microeconomics at the time. And I think many people would have that experience of reading their 1974 paper in particular and just realizing this is what I want to do. It really makes a lot of sense. It, it has that sort of concreteness of economic analysis, but with, a, with, with the freedom of, of being able to go and really empirically explore how people are, are relating to these choices. And, uh, and from there, I, I really... I won't give you every single step of the journey from there, but that's, I think that's, that was really where I felt uh, this is what I wanted to do. 
uh, this type of work. Uh, I've always had a policy angle, and that sort of led me through the years into a lot of encounters with public policy, which which I guess has shaped the way that I think. Uh, but but yeah, I think that would be um, that would be how I got into the area in the first place. Could you tell us uh, more about any mentors that had a strong influence on you or uh, any researcher or the people who have played an influential role in your professional career? Uh, I was quite an independently minded uh, undergraduate, so I would have spent a lot of time reading. Uh, I was lucky in both my psychology and economics department, very, uh, very strong faculty in, in Trinity in Dublin. Um, so I, uh, as I went into my PhD, I was tutoring in cognitive psychology while doing my PhD in economics. Um, but I would say I was quite, uh, if I'm being honest with you, I was quite innocent and quite blinkered. I, I was really just happily working away in the library and uh, had a lot of good friends. And I never really thought about publications or or anything like that, really, until, until it was kind of coming close to job markets and things like that. And uh, when I first started working in the Geary Institute, That's when I got to meet uh, quite a lot of people from from around the world, and, and I, I think I started to become uh, a bit more focused in terms of of research. So around that stage, um, I was starting to do, to do some work on intertemporal choice and working with colleagues in the Rand Corporation and places like that. And um, I mean, I think since then, I've got to know um, many of the leaders in the field and um, really benefited from their from their. Uh, Uh, from discussions with them and so on. But at that, I think at that point, I was very much, I mean, to say that you're independent is a bit arrogant, right? Because you're, we're all the product of our influences. But I think I was really trying to piece together something that I could live with for, for most of those years. So I was starting to publish papers in the Journal of Economic Psychology and getting involved in that community. And it was really towards um, a few years after my PhD that I, I really started to... Um, zone in on some topics like mental health and and um economic outcomes where where uh, it was connecting with the discipline in a bit in a bit bit of a stronger way but i wouldn't say god i hope i don't offend anyone by saying this but i, I don't think there was any uh, core influence at that point beyond um really the the, the readings uh, i mean I, all through my career I'd be very influenced and i've since got to know him very well by cass unstein's work because it it is the work for me that most compellingly brings together questions of economic regulation, uh, behavioral science, uh, law, and so on. So I would have been very influenced by him all the way through and, and have, you know, since got to know him quite well over the last five to 10 years, but uh, he would have been a strong influence on me before, before, um, uh, before I would have got to know him. Um, we know that your work has focused on the measurement of real world economic preferences. Can you explain what that means to our audience and perhaps a bit of uh, what you have learned and concluded from these uh, experiments? Yeah, one, I mean, one, um, I mean, it's, it's, it's a broad concept, but one, one facet of it is uh, something that we've done for, for years. And I guess it's almost an answer to your question as well about influences. So it was, it was originally Ari Captain who was running the very, who set up the famous center in Tilburg and uh, was running the RAND labor and population group when I got to meet him who introduced me to uh, the idea of day reconstruction methods which of course was a, a famous paper published by Daniel Kahneman in, in 2004 and this was something I was thinking about for a long time I never fully was satisfied with lab experimental methods for the types of questions I was interested in and I, I need to stress that because of course lab experiments have their have many uses but I'm, I'm particularly interested in human experience and, and the connection between 
uh, personal traits and the experience of different types of environments, particularly things like unemployment, and really trying to understand how you would measure emotions in in the context in which people live. So um, again, it was another sort of light bulb moment to me when when Ari uh, pointed out day reconstruction as a method for some projects that we were working on. And uh, so with day reconstruction, as you know, it's a combination of time use, uh, but you can also measure well-being um, while you're measuring people's time use. And then with Leo Lades, who's a, a young German scholar that I've worked with for, for several years, and Michael Daly, who's um, uh, one of my colleagues from Ireland, uh, over the years, we've been trying to adapt it uh, to make it useful for understanding decision-making directly. It's a long-term project, and we've we've had some successes with it in terms of being able to do uh, very interesting things with it. Um, so what we do is we measure people's time use through diary methods in the traditional way, and we elicit their well-being in the situations that they're in in the traditional way. And, and Michael and I have integrated things like heart rate monitoring and so on in, in a set of papers into, the, into, into this method. But what we've started to do in the last five years is is also elicit decision-making mechanisms. So in other words, look at conflict when people are making choices in these real-world settings. Uh, and we've worked with um, people, including Will Hoffman, who did some fantastic work on experience sampling in, the, in that uh, in that paradigm. So we've developed a, a sort of modification of day reconstruction to look at decision-making in everyday contexts, in particular looking at conflict between short-run and long-run objectives. And um, we've we've published early papers on that and we're, we're continuing to work on it. And another stream of that is we've started to use day reconstruction to evaluate as a, as a, as a tool for evaluating public programs. So again, we've published a, a paper not so long ago looking at putting day reconstruction into sort of randomized control trials to evaluate public policy. So using experience uh, in, in, a, in a way that I think people like Kahneman and so on had envisaged using experience itself as a potential metric of the evaluation of uh, public policy. And we're doing a lot of work uh, in that direction. And, uh, you know, it comes with caveats. You're, you're often looking at recalled uh, emotion and recalled decision-making processes. And I don't, I mean, I don't believe we'll ever come to a, a state where we'll be, be able to get recall methods that perfectly align with the experience uh, at the time. And I, I actually don't think that's how human behavior works or human decision-making works. Um, but I do think it's very promising in terms of being able to put real, visceral, human emotion uh, into, uh, in, in, you know, into a method for looking at decision making at different points in time. So we wrote a review paper recently for Behavioural Public Policy, which is a wonderful journal. I maybe shouldn't say that because I'm on the editorial board, but it's a, it's a journal that's really opened up the possibilities to explore a lot of these uh, areas, reviewing the potential for naturalistic methods uh, to to open up a new um, area in behavioral decision making uh, so yeah that would be one of one of my main areas of research mm-hmm. and uh, could you uh, share some of your uh, key learnings and uh, um, from this uh, stream of work yes um i i think one of the key things and this i mean i i want to be careful to credit Will Hoffman in in doing so much work in opening up this ground, but certainly um, one thing that's and I think it comes out of you know a century of psychology and we've talked about reintegrating cognition into uh, economics and reintegrating social uh, processes into economics. I think one thing that's really coming out of the work we're doing is the importance of conflict and ambivalence in human decision making. So in in our studies, people are conflicted all the time when they're making decisions. And that has real correlations with their affect at the point of choice. 
And when you look at an awful lot of what we're doing online, for example, we're often, you know, essentially procrastinating from doing something else or we're spending longer than we want to. Uh, One thing that we're finding is that those things are not particularly correlated with traditional measures of economic preferences, which, again, is not a a result that's easy to sell as a a really big, sexy sort of finding from a research. But it's something that's coming through across a lot of literatures that there's this very big distinction between um, economic preferences and their obvious psychological or psychometric counterparts. Uh, And I think part of that is coming from the fact that the more we're learning about preferences, the more we realize that like time span, time, time stamped financial decision-making tasks are capturing a very specific type of preference that doesn't particularly correlate with a range of analogous uh, real world choices. Uh, And that's come out of quite a bit of work that we're doing. Um, Building something back up from that is going to be, is going to be challenging, but I do think where we'll move in behavioral policy and many people are saying this, sorry, I'm using a Trumpism there by saying many people are saying this, I I should, but certainly many people are saying this, that we will move increasingly, of course, to person environment models where, where, you know, people's decision-making can differ quite differently across different domains. Uh, And I think something like self-control, I mean, trade self-control does predict to an extent, the extent to which people exhibit uh, self-control failures in every uh, day scenarios, but it's, it doesn't do a terrifically good job at predicting things like present bias in financial tasks. And uh, I think what it's saying is that, you know, economic preferences, so the beta parameter and so on, uh, is captures an element of human decision making, but that, but that what's actually happening when somebody's navigating a temptation rich environment is, is much more complicated. And I guess my, my colleague Paul, Paul Dolan always used the phrase context matters. And uh, of course it does. So I, I think that's the other thing that we're really looking at in our research, the extent to which day reconstruction with sort of clever data linkage could really account for the richness of the extent to which people, you know, enact behaviors that are counter to their underlying preferences in, in real world settings. Uh, so I think that's really where we're going with that is really to look at the, the environmental drivers. And I think it, it is ultimately, if you read a lot of the wave of behavioral science that became you know, very, very mainstream in the 2000, 2000s, 2010s. It's it's quite essential to that, that the environment can trigger, you know, behaviours that we regret, even at the point when we're doing them. Uh, so I think the types of methods we're developing are, are going to be very useful in uncovering those sort of behaviours. Okay, uh, there is another topic, uh, which is uh, really uh, key in our uh, field, which is uh, ethics and uh, you have done a great deal of work tied to ethics especially your uh, for good uh, framework that i have personally uh, very well uh, uh, appreciated can uh, we speak about uh, uh, this uh, framework uh, how you started to work on it and to uh, maybe explain i think it is an acronym with uh, seven key concepts explain this concept to our listeners yes i mean uh, so this originated uh, i i've developed a number of programs in in behavior science in the uk and ireland and um you know going back years, many of my students were, were going to work in public policy. And I, I always had an emphasis in my in my courses on, on the fact that when you go into areas of public policy, you're dealing with very complicated issues in terms of how people's interests are represented, in terms of 
not just instrumental aspects of whether policies work, but questions of uh, people's dignity, how you treat people with respect, privacy, those types of things. And I mean, there is also, I mean, going back to even early discussions I would have been having with policymakers in Ireland, when you mentioned behavioral science, um, it, can gener- it can generate different reactions in different groups. And I would have got a lot of questions back in the day around, you know, is this manipulative? Are you treating people with respect? And, you know, you can react to that in different ways. And I think what, what how I chose to react to it was really to, to think very deeply about it because you can see how the types of techniques we're developing, the types of methodologies we're developing could be could be used in all sorts of ways. And I wanted to, primarily as an educator, I wanted to structure how we were teaching our students about these types of things. And um, so we, we've been giving lectures on it for well over well over a decade at this point. And then Leo, Leo and I, Leo Lattis and I uh, increasingly decided that, and I, I think if anyone looks at my CV or my profile, you'll see I'm not particularly flashy when it comes to a lot of my papers are quite low key and they kind of fly under the radar. And I remember saying to Leo, you know, I, we're going to have to read the, write this paper that somebody will actually want to read it because it's important. We need to make it salient. Ethics should be salient. We've got some very strong behavioral change frameworks that have got huge traction, deservedly so, because they're good summaries of how to change behavior. But if you look at things like Mindspace or East, uh, they're wonderful mnemonics for unlocking and they're deceptively simple because they bring a lot of really strong literature in. But they don't in themselves trigger questions such as should we intervene? You know, what are the ethical dimensions of it? So I think it was probably the first time in my career I ever gave a paper a title that was likely to get the paper read. And I mean, and and the truth is it does. I mean, once we moved from, you know, the very abstract discussion of ethics into something that was geared very much pragmatically and be geared so that it would A, be salient and also would make it easy for people to digest quite a large philosophical literature and we chunked it down to factors such as fairness, whether there's a conflict with um, other oppor- other opportunities or other methods, such as more hard mandatory methods instead of nudging, respect as in non-instrumental aspects, uh, goals. So what is the welfare goal? Um, opinions, you know, taking into account public opinion, uh, consultation, uh, and so on, and, um, and and delegation. So conflicts of interest, the the, the correct expertise. Uh, in the uh, in the in in the context and so on, it really it, I think it did capture a lot of people's imagination. So we get we get very regular emails about it, and we use it in our uh, executive education. So really, it's essentially firstly considered as a pre mortem, so that people would go through this before they do some work in the area. But I would say it's still far away from being. Um, you know, a very regimented, regulated form of ethical appraisal. Um, it, it's certainly a step towards more ethical appraisal, formal ethical appraisal in, in the field. But it's, um, but I don't think, I don't think um, it's currently intended as such. It's intended really as a, yeah, yeah, a mental check on on what you're doing uh, when you're when you're doing these types of things. I have noticed in my exec teaching, it completely changes the conversation. Um, in terms of it gets people thinking more broadly around issues of consultation, privacy, respect, and so on when they're thinking about um, uh, behavioral intervention work. Now, I also would say that many of the folks who work in this area, you know, already have ethical frameworks either based on their home disciplines or based on their own organizations. And so on. A lot of people are already refactoring those things in um, in all sorts of different ways. So again, we don't want to overclaim on what the framework is doing, but I do think it's helping 
in a range of contexts to to have something concrete because the literature can be quite dense you know there's there's literally hundreds of papers on you know the thinking about the difference between libertarian and paternalistic types of interventions and so on and and i mean you guys know more than anybody when you're dealing in in um fast moving policy context you, you there needs to be something that can put some handles on those uh, issues so i don't think we've got 100% there yet with the framework but it certainly moved things on a bit yeah as a starting point i think it's just great to hear that you're encouraging that thought process and that reflection you know in the context of the teaching that you're doing and and that actually leads me to where i'd love to go with the conversation which was to hear a little bit more about um, your work at lse and uh, the, the PBS in particular. So do you think you could take a step back and, and maybe tell us a little bit about uh, the Department of Psychological and Behavioral Science at LSE and, uh, and the offerings and what you're doing there? Yeah, I should for, firstly say I forgot to mention openness when I was uh, when I was talking about for good. So I left out one of the O's. So uh, maybe it's time we need to shorten the framework. Uh, but obviously, transparency uh, is a really important one. And one, one uh, I, I worked on COVID policy in Ireland recently, and uh, it was something that uh, of the researchers that were uh, working on the project, one of them had the framework sellotaped to their desk so that we were always thinking about these things and, you know, having minutes of meetings and things like that publicly available. Uh, it really did. Um, I, I, I worked with Pete Lunn, who some of your listeners would know, who was doing a lot of the, the studies on behavioural studies on COVID in Ireland. And uh, just even the way that he was constantly available to the media um, at any point uh, about the types of things we're doing. And I think when you're working on large scale national policies, when there's elements of you know controversy and people have different opinions, I, I do think uh, transparency around the behavioral work is, uh, is important. In terms of the uh, work that we're doing in LSE, um, so there's been a long tradition of psychology in LSE, um, going back to the Institute of so- Social Psychology. And then um, we also, we are, we're a social science university, so 700 and something social science professors all in uh, a central London campus. Uh, it's an incredibly energi- energi- energizing place um, and um, it's constantly like throwing up new uh, configurations of social science disciplines and so on. And sometimes things emerge somewhat randomly. And I, I think there was an element of that with this in that you were starting to see a really strong behavioral science group emerge in our uh, old school of uh, public policy, um, and they were the, there was quite a health focus among them. So people like Paul Dolan, who's very well known for qualies, uh, Matteo Galizzi, my colleague, who uh, has done done a, done a lot of work again on health decision making, and um, for reasons I won't go into in a lot of depth, uh, the, there was there was a proposal to merge that behavioral science group with the with the psychology department and. They became the Department of Psychology and Behavioral Science, or the Department of Psychological and Behavioral Science. So it was really a group of social psychologists um, and behavioral science folks that had a, a particular expertise in health decision making that came together. And this is about six or seven years ago now when this was happening. And I think at the time it could have gone either way, if I'm being quite truthful. Um, I mean, they, they weren't really that connected uh, together in advance. But I think what rapidly became apparent was how how much the external world wanted this to happen in a place like LSE. And uh, you were seeing a huge interest from across the world in what was happening. And Paul Dolan, uh, uh, in particular, drove the development of um, an executive MSc in behavioral science, which is now moving into its seventh year, where, again, senior mid to senior execs from all over the world come to LSE 
for for essentially a year of fly-in uh, visits to do uh, work with us. And then um, following that, a full-time MSc was set up and then uh, an undergraduate program in psychology and behavioral science. So at the moment, we've got about 300 students every year um, consisting of our new programs in behavioral science, sitting alongside our programs in social and organizational and applied psychology and economic psychology effectively. So, you know, what could have been a weakness at the start, which is there was quite a bit of intellectual heterogeneity, shall we say, has turned into a real strength because you've got all of these inputs from social psychology, from particular types of critical social psychology, organizational psychology, and then emerging forms of behavioral science, all sort of clashing off one another. Uh, so it creates a wonderfully uh, dynamic environment. Uh, the programs themselves have been uh, very successful. So we've, we've now got a very strong alumni that are very connected and we're building, including yourself, um, uh, uh, Scott, a, a, a quite a large amount of visitors from across the world um, that are that are feeding into the programs in in all sorts of different ways. So, I think increasingly it, it's becoming a hub for applied behavioral science um, in ways that, uh, since I've taken over, I mean, I had the good fortune of joining the department just as we were implementing our COVID restrictions. So there's been, a, I mean, it's worked very well, but it has been a challenge just uh, keeping the department running and making sure everybody was was doing okay and all of that type of stuff. But we have already started to add a lot of online programs that will start coming on stream pretty soon. And really what, what I'm what I'm really hoping to do is build a lot of spaces within, within LSE that people from the public and private sector can come either virtually or in person to work with us on projects. And that's increasingly happening. Uh, you're also starting to see a number of, for example, spin out organizations where, you know, uh, uh, people from the exec program have, have met up with one another and set up either consultancy firms or or social purpose type work uh, or interested in increasingly people interested in developing uh, capacity across different countries, including setting up national networks uh, in house in government agencies, those types of things. Um, so every week, and again, uh, as you know, Scott, because you've spoken to it, we have the wider world session where people come from agencies all around the world to speak uh, to the alumni and uh, current groups. Uh, and that's a very dynamic uh, group. I'm really looking forward to our building being fully back open. And I think we, we will have a range of sort of hybrid uh, structures going forward over the next couple of years where we can really... Um, build those connections into public policy regulation um, and then businesses that are really using this stuff well. And um, yeah, so so I think that's where the vision is. I mean, I would say the other thing I would say about it is um, intellectually, there's just so much of interest there. I really believe some of the most interesting academic and research questions for the next few years will be things like lab to field. So we built a very strong, um, would have, fairly large investment from LSE, a very strong lab. And we're particularly focused on looking at correlations between lab and real world behavior and looking at how you can nest the lab into different types of mixed method type designs. And um, I also think things like ethics will be another one. I mean, I know like for good is a very nice overview, but you know, I mean, I'll give you an example, but one recent paper that I really like in behavioral public policy goes through 17 different notions of autonomy that are relevant to public policy. And again, you kind of wonder sometimes, will anyone have the bandwidth in policy to cope with something like 17 different concepts of autonomy? But I still think 
almost if you were thinking like a Hadron Collider for the development of really interesting new businesses, really interesting new social purpose companies, like really interrogating all that stuff as it hits all of these real world institutions, I think would be absolutely fascinating. Um, and again, not the only place in the world thinking along those lines, but uh, we really do have hundreds of people uh, really, really wanting to do this. Uh, so so I think that's where what LSE is going to be or LSE behavioral science, a big component of it will be for the next few years. Well, that's great. I mean, to be honest, I think you've, you've answered two or three of my further follow-up questions in the context of what you just said. But um, I mean, maybe just to play it back to you, what, what I think I heard you saying is, you know, really perhaps the guiding vision is to be this hub that, that brings together people um, across different disciplines and, and with different angles from both the business side and private sector side, and certainly the policy side and academic side. Um, is, that, is that capturing some of, some of the vision that you just mentioned? Yeah, I, I mean, I really do have a vision of, um, and a lot of my colleagues also, of just this very thick environment there where, I mean, it's partly starting to see it come through the things like the wider world session where it's it's very common now for, you know, somebody to raise a point about an interesting application and then the person who did the application just happened to be on the line and coming in and explaining it. And, you know, you're moving from, you know, some of the public events we do, which are brilliant, which get a very large general audience who are interested in, the, you know, it's a public audience, they want to hear about the ideas to, to a case where you, I really think you now have this body of people deeply integrated into organizations all around the world who who want to engage at a level that's far deeper. You know what I mean? They, they We're having increasing sessions where people are, you know, debating about uh, different processes or giving examples of how, you know, something worked well when they set up something in an organization or something didn't work well. And some of it is what you would call professional networking and people are, you know, people who are working on the area are comparing. But some of it, I think, is leading to deeper questions about um, how you would how you would build a literature around some of these things. I mean, for me, the ethics framework arose from earlier discussions around that lines when you were talking to people in organizations saying, you know, I'm really interested in doing work in this area, but the ethical question is the one that we're interested in most. Now, I mean, the question that I hear about most from people um, working in, in organizations is how do you, what's the right ca uh, capacity build in this area? And again, there's some good people working on that question. And I don't think it's just a, you know, it's just a practical question. I think intellectually, it's a really interesting question. Topic, concepts like loss of errors or present bias live in that world, you know, the, to the extent that they're meaningful as concepts in, in, in outside of the lab, they must live in a world where they have to be revealed in some way or another through that administrative structure. And I find it increasingly interesting just to think about, um, what, what I think the next wave of behavioral science will look like, which is one where people are increasingly building in all of these institutional constraints into uh, models. And you're seeing it, of course, with things like the replication crisis, all sorts of new science emerging around that uh, stuff. Uh, you're seeing so much awareness of the, the cultural limitations of previous iterations of behavioral science. And I think um, the absorptive capacity of organizations will be the next one that um, some of these concepts don't really mean something. It's, it's, it's like the tree falling in the forest. You know, if, if you have a wonderful concept, but it just can't be measured uh, and it can't be studied, is it really a wonderful concept? Uh, and how do we actually build capacity across the world to really embed these things in a way? And then getting on to questions like who funds that 
what's the professional structure around that? I mean, a, a colleague of mine almost refers to it, if you think of medicine, where you've got the body and then you've got the practitioners. Um, you know what I mean? There's, all, there's so much we have to develop, um, some of which you can say has been developed in some of the parent disciplines like psychology, and some of which I just don't think so. Some of which I think uh, is exciting to think where we'll go in the next 10 years about what uh, what we look like as a profession, uh, what our codes will look like, what practice will look like, what we will ultimately think of as being our pedagogy, those sort of things. Um, and again, you're seeing textbooks emerging, but still relatively early stage uh, on, on, on some of those types of things at least in this strain. I mean, I'm saying all this, and as you know, I give a lecture in LSE every year on the, the sort of 300 years of different traditions of linking economics and psychology together. So, and I'm always aware of uh, when, when we launched the Sterling program, we had a keynote from Ulrich Witt, who's a brilliant uh, German um, decision, decision theorist who said, uh, 35 years ago, I went to the launch of the Journal of Behavioral Economics. And then he, he said, it no longer exists. Uh, which um, which I thought was a very uh, uh, cautionary uh, message. But I do, I, 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 my, my feeling on that, though, is I, I, um, the, the interaction of economics and psychology and the other behavioral sciences, um, you know, it's, it's, it, it recurs in different ways uh, throughout, throughout the centuries. And I think we, we can identify at the moment there's certainly a strain of it that's doing something incredible in terms of the integration it's it's achieving in uh, in public policy but i'm sort of relaxed about the idea that there will be an element of toing and froing about uh, these types of things and we don't i mean it is something i say to my students i mean we don't know what this will be in 10 years we it's not like getting a job in accountancy or something like that where you have a reasonable degree of predictability as to where your career structure is going to be this may change uh, quite a lot i mean guess what i've always said to them is I can't, I can't envisage any world in the next 50 years where paying attention to human behavior in a structured way is going to be less valued. Um, but, but what the field will precisely be called, what the roles will be, uh, and you see things like chief behave, behavioral officer and things like that being used a lot. Uh, I, I've probably gone on a little long on this answer, but I guess it's, it's my way of saying that I don't think those questions are should be relegated to being conceived of as sort of just applied questions away from the intellectual development. And, and when we think of our ethics, when we think of our conduct, when we think of our professional structure and how we relate to the world, um, I guess, as you can tell by how quickly I start speaking about it, I, that's what does excite me. It's why I love being in the position that I'm in where I'm both developing programs and having that constant interaction with people that are that are going into the world to work on these topics. Uh, I think it is uh, a common uh, interest uh, and we would like to uh, have a conversation with you about this intersection uh, between academia and private sector. Um, what opportunities and maybe challenges uh, do you see for academics and practitioners to work together? Well, as you know, the, the, the classic ones are academics' time horizon and understanding of money tends to be quite different from uh, from from folks in the in the private sector. I mean, we can all think of ways when it doesn't work, right? In terms of different goals and uh, just different incentives, academics will generally tend to think about their constraints being publish or perish, and um, you know what will be valued in their field, and sometimes that can be different. Uh, I think where where you see it working is 
um, in in cases where, I mean, obviously, increasingly the amount of data that's available in in many private organisations is such that it opens up opportunities on on that front. I think also when you get organisations that have people within them that are, I, I think that that have you know some sympathy with the academic um, viewpoint and have some room to be able to do it. I think I think that's where where you may see some of the most interesting things happening where. Um, you know, some of the some of the, some large private sector organisations can see uh, developing some capacity in that area uh, as 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 being useful. I mean, obviously, in the financial sector, you're seeing it uh, increasingly, and I, I think I go as far to say I don't think there's any large private sector organisation that isn't developing at least some capacity uh, in the area. And I can think of good work. I mean, Neil Stewart's work with with uh, one of the large UK. Um, uh, financial institutions um, has produced some wonderful papers on, you know, credit cards and so on. And, and I think that's an example where, if you read those papers, if the if the people in the private organisation had been too nervous and had been too driven by their bottom line, they may not have, you know, they may have asked themselves, what do we benefit from this being published? Whereas the fact that they published it just gives it a lot more credibility. Uh, it gets it out there, and uh, I think it's finding those sort of things where you can find. Uh, folks within those institutions that you know can see some reason for doing that. Uh, I think that's I think that's where the where the um, I mean I can think of also recent papers. Uh, Katie Milkman's mega mega studies paper again, like a fifty a fifty three arm randomized trial uh, on the private gyms over over in the US. So so I mean you can see you can see so many opportunities. Uh, I also think. Um, there's potential, there's potentially disruptive ideas uh, in terms of um, higher order concepts of preference being used to generate uh, product ideas. Um, and it, you, if you look at a, a lot of the research that's coming out about how people interact with the internet um, and how people interact with the product environment, I, I think it's questionable how much behavioral science can really teach marketing about things like exploiting present bias. Because I think basically marketers know how to do that uh, and may have different language for it. But I think we may have something to, to teach in terms of higher order meta concepts of preferences that are starting to develop. In particular, uh, the potential, for example, like self-regulatory tools uh, to emerge from the academic literature that could rapidly become things that, um, you know, particularly fintech. I mean, you, you're looking at some of the stuff that's coming out of fintech. And you you might think they could have developed it without behavioral science, but I think increasingly they are explicitly drawn from behavioral science. And I think you're seeing that sort of emergence. And that's, again, where I get very excited because I really think you could put a group of academically minded people in a room with, with developers and so on with a, with a mandate to do things like that. And they could do something very, very interesting that everybody would be excited by. Uh, I think something similar with some of the social purpose type companies like Slow Open Artsy's um, initiative Acorn in the U.S., to, to help people save or, um, you know, again, increasingly a number of products that the financial industry, I mean, people like EY have started talking about banking being essentially behavioral. Um, and again, it's probably getting warmer to what I think is, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a space where academics and folks in the industry uh, could really, could really get together um, and, and, and do some interesting things, but we're probably only uh, scratching the surface uh, so far.
Mm -hmm. And uh, I can't resist to ask uh, a quick question for uh, myself and uh, Scott, uh, your perspective regarding how to successfully infuse behavioral science within organization, whatever it is, uh, governmental, uh, public policy organization or private organization. Do you have some advice regarding uh, the best way to infuse behavioral sciences within organization? I'm going to make one prediction, which is I think it's going to happen a lot more organically as people that got very interested in this area, let's say 2008, 2009, 2010. And I'm thinking of a lot of my former students, but also people, you know, top US uh, business schools and so on who started studying it in a really systematic way. Uh, and we're really, you know what I mean? Obviously, decision theory and so on was taught in business schools in the States going back to the 50s. But I, I think the way that it was taught as being uh, something that was transformative uh, for in, things like the regulatory structure of business and so on. That's an idea that lodged in a, in a lot of really bright, creative people's minds around that stage. And they've gone into organizations and they've kept it. I mean, you meet these people. I would certainly meet a lot of alumni of the LSE programs and a lot of alumni of my own courses going back for years who are now, you know, 10, 15 years into their career um, have tended to move up their organization and are still very taken with these ideas. And I think you'll see a generation of, you know, senior leaders in firms who are very comfortable with these ideas, who don't think of them as being sort of goofy academic ideas. They really see they really see ways they could do things in their organizations with them. Uh, so I think, uh, you know, that's not quite answering your question, but I think it's saying that I think it'll happen organically because I think there's just now, you know, several thousand people who are in organizations across the world that would see that as something they're interested in doing. And we're increasingly even seeing networking events to bring those sort of people together. And uh, I think they, that, I mean, I always think they will be the most important group. It, they'll be, you know, the ones that are embedded in organizations who know their organizations inside out, but have that instinct that studying human behavior in a in a scientific way and they won't be too rigid as well i think they will be you know what i mean they'll want it to be grounded in the type of behavioral science they've studied but they'll you know they'll they'll have they'll have an eye to their organization so they'll bring together fusions of this stuff like designers you know whatever gets the job done i guess is the vibe you get from some of these folks but they definitely are interested in and i find it with my students that are applying for posts now um, you know what I mean? The, the, they're being interviewed in, in areas like comms, HR, and so on. And really, uh, the conversations they're having are very interesting uh, in terms of the mindset that's that's going in some of those firms. So I think um, I think that will happen. In terms of how to promote it, I mean, obviously, people talk a lot about you know having small teams within organisations that uh, find some low hanging fruit and you know develop the concept and, and things like that. And I think I think everyone's aware of those sort of things um i'm increasingly interested in in the potential for even short duration groups to start with organizations to do uh like i'm fascinated i think uh, sunstein sunstein and kahneman's work this year is going to be very influential that book noise will will uh, trigger an awful lot of interest in developing behavioral capacity uh within organizations um I think I'm not. I mean, sludge audits. I think will will be very interesting as well. Uh, People get a lot of conversation going, but I, I actually I don't know whether I should make a prediction, but I do think noise will be one of the biggest uh, business books uh, in the next few years. And I say that because I, I teach some of the ideas from some of the papers in my classes, and I I'm, can never really predict the reaction from my students. But on that one, it just gets an it gets an incredible reaction uh, in exec audiences because it's getting at that fundamental idea that there's 
all sorts of behavioral irrationality in the decision making of, of firms. I mean, we're so used to hearing it about individuals, whereas people recognize it so much in the processes of their of their firm. And it really uh, it really triggers a lot of desire to do something about it when when people confront those ideas. So I think that would be another area. Um, but other, other ways to uh, build capacity. Um, I mean, cer- certainly there is something to be said for the small three to four person unit within an organization that acts as a hub for building the capacity in the area and then brings people in together as needed. Um, um, Michael Sanders, who was influential in in the Behavioural Insights team, um, they're doing a lot of work at the moment precisely on this question as to what's the best organisational form for behavioural work. And uh, I mean, the other fascinating thing is, I mean, I know it creates some debate is what exactly is behavioural science. And I think that one will will take various forms over the next couple of years. I think there will be an element, if you can't beat them, join them, which will be, I, I actually genuinely see more willingness from people like anthropologists, ethnographers and so on, simply to go, look, if they want to call all that behavioral science, we're happy to just go in to the behavioral science group. And and you might, I mean, I, but I do have a, an attitude towards that, which is I, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I, I don't, I don't, I mean, I, I think you'd want to separate out that strain of behavioral science that emerged after nudge because it's doing a particular thing. But if it meant that what actually happened was it created more awareness of the need for psychology, anthropology, and so on, design thinking, and then that kind of got led to organizational form developments, I think that wouldn't be a bad thing, right? I mean, uh, if, if, if you had hybrid groups emerging. Uh, I, I, I struggled with the phrase behavioral science myself, but I've increasingly come to like it. And I haven't found a better one. I mean, uh, behavioral policy works for a lot of the work that I work in, or behavioral public administration actually works very well for a lot of the work that I work in. But in terms of, you know, the types of people that we're speaking about or the types of people probably listening to this podcast, if you were to bring them together in an organization to say, right, you guys are to help us with understanding behavioral aspects of the following five big problems that define the success of our firm in the next 10 years. I think it'd be hard to find a better word for that, to be honest. Um, and maybe your listeners might have ideas, but I think it's a nice word for bringing together. Uh, and the, I mean, the other thing I would say is think of all the psychology, anthropology graduates who basically had to cast off their degree when they went into these areas. And I think that's another thing that's happening is some people are realizing, you know, actually, yeah, to some extent, I can reinvent myself as a behavior scientist and I have these skills. I can do ethnography uh, I understand uh, a lot of series of human behavior. And we've done sessions with alumni in, in LSE where we've brought back alumni from our social psychology programs, for example, who who have moved into that agenda. And uh, again, you probably think, is that does that mean we're just relabeling social psychology? And I, I really don't think so. I think what's happening is there's a bit in the in the sort of intersection of the Venn diagrams of these areas um where where it's you know what i mean if you're if you're on an evaluation project using econometric methods bringing in a theory of social norms and then doing some ethnography on it and so on i mean you know you could probably call it evaluation science maybe and there's probably a couple of other things that you would call it but i think behavioral science is not a is not a bad and not a bad way to package that um and maybe i mean maybe once that becomes established as a thing that almost any organization should do that's another thing that will happen the diffusion of it across different organizations is fascinating at the moment. Uh, it's something I, I don't know if I would have predicted 10, 15 years ago. Um, but, uh, yeah. We definitely couldn't resist the opportunity to ask you about the COVID crisis. And and I guess you could take this in, in a couple, many, many directions, of course. But I was curious, first, 
um, what work has been going on at LSE or what engagement there's been um, tied to the COVID crisis. And then also perhaps what thoughts you, you're comfortable sharing about what's what's been work, done right and perhaps what has been done wrong with respect to how governments have been handling it. Because we've been actually working with the French government. So certainly it's it's an area that we've been thinking a great deal about and kind of looking across um, governments to see to see what is what has been working, what hasn't been working, and, and perhaps what, what could be done better moving forward. Yeah, I mean, I, I think many of the like major events of the 21st century, including pandemics, have a huge human behavior component to it. I think that's the first thing. I mean, there's been debates this year about whether various aspects of psychology and behavior science are ready for emergency response. And again, I, I don't fully understand the argument in the sense that, you, you know, the the types of behavioral issues that emerge from these types of things. I think the proposition for behavior science is basically that one can provide structured, non-egregious, not obviously biased information about human behavior in these uh, sort of contexts through the methods that we have. Um, not that we can provide pinpoint answers based on some general theory of everything, because that isn't possible, but you can provide structured ways of delivering serviceable knowledge into people dealing with emergencies in real time through the types of methods that we have, use, using theory as a guide to what you want to measure and then assess in real time and to do so in a way that's ethical and structured. And that would have been my guiding, my sort of North Star in any work that I've done in the area that you're not there to set the policy, you're there to provide evidence on the key behavioral aspects of it to feed into what is a multi-dimensional a set of inputs that the folks making decisions are drawing from. And uh, I would, you know, as you say, we're running out of time, but I would certainly very strongly defend the use of behavior science and very strongly advocate the role of behavior science uh, as, uh, as a key evidence point uh, in, in these. And you've seen people like Mike Ryan in the WHO uh, talk about the need for <clears throat> more integrated behavior science. And we could talk a lot about what went well and what went wrong in, in different countries in terms of how the input of behavior science was portrayed. I think in the UK, we had we had a lot of uh, media discussion about behavior science, which actually has flared up again in the last couple of days in terms of uh, its connection to the political process and so on, which which I think is something that um, we're, 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 we're thinking about. And we actually, we released a paper not so long ago summarizing all those media debates in the UK around behavior science. Um, I would say, um, yeah, to make to, to cut it down to a, to a short answer, uh, I think there should be structured uh, behavior research input. Uh, so I'm running a summer session actually in LSE on behavior science and sort of major risks of the 21st century. And Cass Sunstein has a book actually out in the next couple of days about the about some of these. Um, and uh, obviously, um, yeah, I, I, I mean. I mean, I actually feel I'm being a bit defensive because there was some arguments about whether behavioral science should be involved. So this issue of epistemic trespass, should behavioral science be involved in what are essentially medical issues? And if you see it like that, you think of, you know, very brute force medical interventions. And um, whereas, I, you know, if you see these things as being very complicated issues of communication, how people respond to communication, uh, if you see things like vaccines, for example, if you see vaccines as purely a medical technology, uh, as opposed to a really complicated social 
uh, and communication effort, uh, it'll condition the way you think about it. So for somebody like me, um, whether it's COVID, whether it's climate change, uh, these types of things, I see human beings communicating to other human beings and um, to some extent trying to coordinate behavior through formal fiscal channels and then all of these other uh, non-mandatory channels. So in, in that in that sense, um, I, I think having structured behavioral inputs in it. In terms of the role of LSE, many of our faculty, including myself in the Irish case, uh, Matteo Galizzi in the Italian case, uh, Jet Sanders, who's currently seconded to the Dutch government, uh, would have had a lot of role uh, in the background, really, just doing, uh, I mean, again, the, the, the not so sexy, but very important work of providing evidence on behavior, norms, attitudes, risk perceptions um, to to government in a way that's robust and timely. Uh, and then trying to, trying to, you know, trying to be guided by theory, but not so constrained by it that you're not allowing the data to speak for itself. And I think that's really the, the goal of, uh, so I'm involved in a network on trust in science, and um, Nancy Cartwright, actually the former LSE professor, has, has phrased it quite well that science is not just about creating general theories of, of you know, that, that are universally true. Science is about creating robust, uh, accountable knowledge in a way that can be scrutinized and in, in a way that can be, you know, at least not egregiously biased. Um, so that's probably a, a very... <laughs> Not the most optimistic way of ending, but I but I do think that's a very important role for behavioral science. Like if somebody wants to say, as they were doing all the way through, for example, in Ireland, to say the norm has broken down, the role of behavioral scientists is to, is to go and test that. Is that true? And if it is true, what does that mean? And and in many cases, it turned out it wasn't true at all. That when you actually had proper methods to look at it, the norms around adherence, for example, were were keeping up very high, and you were seeing quite high high rates of compliance across a whole range of different types of behaviors. Um, and I think with something like behavior, senior decision makers will often think, you know, this is common sense. I can figure it out myself. Um, and, but uh, yeah, no, I think having behavioral work in there as a way of uh, providing timely evidence on some of these key things that holds all of these responses together is really important. Maybe uh, Liam, last uh, question, because we are at the end of our conversation and a big one, but maybe you could give us a, a short answer to this big question. What is your vision for the future of our field, meaning behavioral science? <clears throat> It's partly a vision of fragmentation uh, so that we will, we will see specialisms emerging. Uh, we will also see elements of it going back into pre-existing paradigms. So, you know, people will realize, oh, I am actually a social social psychologist after all, or you'll see new fields like, you know, uh, behavioral public administration emerging. Um, on the bigger side uh, and the more unifying side, I think we're not fully realizing yet what the implications will be of having maybe thousands, if not tens of thousands of people working in those areas. The emerging properties of that in terms of the development of professional practice and the development of norms, uh, the development of practitioner science relationships, mission-driven behavioral science around things like climate change. And um, when you think about some of those, um, the, the standard deviation is very high in terms of what could happen, but it, it really, it's not crazy to think that one of the biggest punts we have in the 21st century for humanity is huge, behaviorally informed, mission-driven type projects around climate change, around pandemic response, around the future of work, around people you know, who are very, very socially driven, standing up and going, it's not inevitable that the vast majority of the world have no savings. 
And it's not inevitable that our attention is so distracted by technology rather than technology being a force for well-being. And if you think of it like that, and I, I, not the best TED talker, but I do sometimes give this talk to my students to inspire them when we're going through, you know, all the doubts around this area and going through all of the stuff that you have to go through. But it's it's worth thinking about. These are wonderful, big, uh, bold 21st century project, projects that if you're working in that area, um, you know, you're you're doing something that... Uh, is as important as any other thing I can think of for the 21st century, I'll put it that way, uh, and could could do things that will transform the way that we relate uh, to technology and to the natural world and so on. And, and that's what ultimately gets me up in the morning and why I'm so excited to be in a place like LSE to have so many people around me just fused by that sort of energy. Um, so maybe that's that's a, that's a much nicer note to end on, and it's one I, one I really believe. It is a much nicer note to end on, and I will say that uh, your passion and energy and excitement about it really does come through, which is, is great to hear. And I only wish we had a lot more time to dive deeper into uh, so many of the different challenges and issues you, you touched on today. Um, but really, I just wanted to finish by thanking you so much for being here with us and also giving you one quick opportunity um, to point our listeners in the right direction uh, if they'd like to find out more about LSE and your program or really anything else you'd like to mention uh, to point them in the right direction? Yeah, the PBS uh, Twitter account. So if you just type LSE PBS Twitter or just LSE PBS website, uh, pretty much everything is up there. And um, yeah, my own Twitter will ha has links to my personal blog where I've, I think, 5,000 posts at the moment with all the different uh, websites and reading lists and things like that. So if people are interested in reading more about uh, ethics or mental health or you know, even all of the sort of professional aspects of the field. Uh, I, th I think I've covered every single question um, in some form on the blog over the years. Thank you. That's a great, that's a great, I'm sure that's an amazing resource um, that when that folks can dive into. So thanks again, Liam. It was a really pleasure uh, speaking with you and, and, and hearing about your, your work and your, your vision uh, for behavioral science. Thanks again. Pleasure. Thank you very much. Be good a podcast by the BVA Nudge Unit.